Hello. Hello. Hi, cool. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, hi, Alex. And and what's the gentleman's name? Jiang uh, Gan. Jiang Gan. Nice meeting you. Yeah, how are you? Yeah. yeah. Where, so Jiang Gan is. Oh, uh, I'm in Thailand. <laughs> it's in Thailand. He's specifically in Thailand. Yeah. Yeah. Right now, I'm moving around. Or... <laughs> But anyway. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, so we're just waiting for one more friend, then then we can can begin. Hello, hello. It's been a while. Yes, it has. And, uh, hold, on, hold on, Andrew. We just agree on a rule. When you describe your physical location, Alex will add, will add a B to mask that. <laughs> <laughs> Not for right. Andrew. Andrew. He, well, actually, no. Andrew. Andrew has a, a lot of uh, people he wants to. Not piss off, so maybe we'll have the deepest location. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so shall we just begin then? Sure, sure. Let's go. Let's go. Okay. Hello, barbarians, and welcome to the 18th episode of the LLD podcast from Asia on Asia with discussion and debate on trending topics. Uh, with your, with us today, myself, Alex, typically your host of EOA. Jangan, the super information connector, as usual. Andrew G has been gone for a long, long time. Coming in from Portugal, the master debater. Wow. How are you? I'm good, thanks. I'm actually in Spain right now. Oh, it's you? Spain. Yeah. It's the same to us. Spain. It's the same to us. Yeah. <laughs> yes. For people in Asia, same, same uh, yeah. Iberian Peninsula. So, sorry. By the way, Alex, is that a condom behind you? No, that's a rocket ship. Into <laughs> that, do you do you yes. remind? It's our it's our past. Our past. All of us have been connected to. I love Dave. So you got a rocket to somebody. Um, what is a rocket trying to screw? Unicorn. A unicorn. The rocket is trying to screw. It's becoming a unicorn. It's a transformational yes. art symbol, Jagan. Exactly. No, it looks exactly. like the rocket is trying to yeah. screw a unicorn. Yeah. <laughs> all right, and for our usual. Uh, Listeners and watchers, we do have a special guest today. Uh, I'm gonna murder your full Thai name, uh, Napudan Kamal Satian. <laughs> I call him sure. by his nickname Ku. Maybe you could introduce yourself briefly. Uh, Ku is, I mean, you could tell us your background, oh. especially because today's topic is an AI. So maybe you could tell us about yourself a bit. Sure. Um, actually, I think it's easier for foreigners to call me uh, by my sort of uh, American name, Ken. Uh, because Ku okay. is lot, so it's tonal, right? And if you yeah. watch the tone in Thai, I'm from Thailand, by the way, originally. And um, so if uh, you watch the tone in Thai word, it sounds, uh, it has a very different meaning. <laughs> it could be uh. go very impolite as well. So that's why I <laughs> typically go by Ken. But but Alex sort of knows Chinese a little bit, <laughs> so he probably can <laughs> get the tone right. But anyway, so I, I was... Um, I studied AI uh, for my master's uh, at the U of Texas in Austin a long while ago, but I have kept um, in touch with the field, so to so to speak. Uh, basically, I I keep kind of um, up with the advances and um, use the AI advances to work um, to basically put it into my startup as well. Into um, basically, I work on like language learning apps. And um, yeah, we are 
using the latest AI advances to improve the experience of learning languages for people around the world, starting uh, with uh, my current audience in Thailand, basically. Yeah, and so how Ku and I actually know each other was many, many years ago when I was visiting <laughs> Thailand, uh, I was just having randomly lunch uh, and I guess see him Paragon the mall and then yeah. he was sitting next to me and then he overheard some of our conversation and just introduced himself randomly. And so I, I think over so the many years, was the investor. <laughs> no, just, we were talking about random stuff. I, I don't remember exactly what we were talking about, but he, he didn't know. I mean, I was in a startup. I was at the time was like probably like I was easy taxi time or something like this. So I was still around Thailand and whatnot. And then um, we just stayed in touch. And then, you know, little did I know that in over the years, uh, who had his, a successful startup already in the English learning space before that. And then now he's kind of revisiting that with, you know, AI technology. And uh, I've been working with him like loosely through, you know, like early stage investing at the, with the company. And so that's kind of how we are today. Um, but I guess like, to kick things off though, I guess I could, we could probably, you know, briefly introduce AI, because I think a lot of our audience only knows very little about AI. So as, as a overall concept and maybe a very, very, very brief history, and then we can kind of talk about where AI is today, right? So for those who don't know, AI is, and please correct me if I'm, you know, if I'm wrong, uh, I'm, I'm very new to this too. So, but AI is a branch of computer science that, you know, uses, I basically, you know, is involved in building machines capable of performing tasks that require human intelligence, right? And a lot of that involves, you know, having programs or algorithms make accurate predictions from data, right? And right. essentially, the birth of this started in 1940s and 50s. And I think there was two interesting things from this time period that I noticed uh, was that, so basically, the 40s and 50s was the foundation of AI, where a lot of the concepts and methods that are used today are directly from that time period. And there wasn't anything widely divergent or changed that happened. Essentially, they're just using the same concepts and extrapolating upon that. And the second thing that I found interesting from that time period was that it was- a Actually, I need, I need to interrupt that. Sorry about that. Sure. Uh, it's not, I say that the foundations from the 40s and 50s are not very much used today at all, actually. <laughs> uh, there, there are some, so, so there are a few, a few areas, a few uh, kind of chain of thoughts from those periods that are still in use. Uh, yeah. For example, neural networks prominently, but uh, there are like things like symbolically reasoning that is not very prominently okay. at all. So, so it's, I wouldn't say it's very, uh, there, there are things that has uh, been useful, but there are a lot of things that are sort of, at least for now, discarded uh, yeah. partly as well. Yeah, okay. so go ahead, please. A good clarification, but I think you're right. So I guess we'll get into that later on too. So yes, yeah, so, so things like the you know the artificial neuron was actually derived from biology, right? So uh, you know, for example, uh, when they were modeling the brain, like neurons in the brains, that was probably one of the first concepts used in creating the artificial neurons, right? Uh, there was learning hypothesis that were used to kind of model neuroplasticity which I think was had some kind of applications in un, you know, unsupervised learning, which is one of the concepts used in AI research. So, and, so you know, for, I'm going to, to throw the, the pause, I think. 
I think the, the name neural networks can be pretty misleading, right? They call them neural networks because of the initial idea. But if you look at how it actually works, we have no clue how the neuron actually passes information back. That's true. But yeah. a mathematical like formulation called backpropagation, which is what allows neurons to do, uh, like neural networks to do what they do and be really effective. And that's something that was developed in like the late 80s or early 90s. Um, right. And, and yeah. that... A bit, a bit early, yeah. Yeah, and so that makes it yeah. that makes it quite different. I mean, the naming has stuck, but it really doesn't function the same way a neuron does. Yeah, correct. And I think I think yeah, cool is right. So it, the concepts were a bit earlier, but the actual practical limitations, like the very rudimentary entries, were like in the '80s, and then you know, more so in the '90s, right? But essentially, like the brief history is that from like after that period, from the 1950s to the 1990s, by and large, has been a slow incremental building up of, you know, modern methods, techniques, and models used today with, I think, the most important part, you know, aside from the 10 years of these two different periods where there was very slow development, but within this, like, 1950s and 1990s, there was, um, overall, the most important thing was a limitation in hardware. So I think a lot of the things that the early concepts that, you know, the, the researchers and the practitioners wanted to see fruition were limited by, you know, lack of computational power. It was only towards until like the 1990s to the 2020s now that we're seeing with, you know, the explosion of the, you know, personal computers, you know, Moore's laws catching up, the breakthroughs in GPUs, especially today, like the, it's like a new golden age of GPUs that can do more computations, right? Now that we're actually seeing a lot of those concepts come to fruition. And I guess as Ku mentioned, it's, of course, it's not exactly the same thing from from back then till now. It's taking some of those things, and now we're seeing it. You know, all these kind of models are very much more accurate and more useful and widely diffused, right? So, I guess my first question to you guys is like, how would you, how would you like categorize AI now, or you know, for someone who doesn't really understand AI, how would you organize it for them to kind of understand it? Uh, you know, from that period back then till now. Uh, well, it's. I think it's hard to describe it in a few minutes, <laughs> but uh, I'll say that uh, back then, actually, uh, the founders of AI as a field thought that intelligence was not that hard, and <laughs> they were super, super mistaken, obviously, and they actually yeah. had like uh, sort of uh, assigned some uh, huge tasks like solving computer vision to a graduate student to do over a summer or something or a year, <laughs> which is like. <laughs> completely mistaken because it's taken like decades and still we are not we haven't solved computer vision yet uh, but we are getting closer and closer i'll say that uh there, there are some things that are um well at that time uh logic right logical reasoning was huge uh and symbolic reasoning so things that uh people basically write things that solve problems based on the way that human consciously solve them, uh, like when we solve math problems or puzzles. And um, they work sort of well for some problems, sort of toy problems, uh, like checkers. Uh, we had really good checker programs uh, many, many decades ago. And later, chess, because uh, eventually computers beat uh, the world chess champion, Gary Kasparov, in the 90s. Right, but it's still like a few decades from that uh, because we needed a uh, more computing power. But uh, that kind of paradigm sort of is called GoFi, kind of uh, good old fashioned AI, that's the acronym in the field, uh, has sort of uh, fizzled out 
because it doesn't really solve real problems. Uh, turns out the real world is a lot more complex than uh, we can solve using just logical reasoning. And much of the human brain actually doesn't involve logical reasoning. That's why so many people are not great <laughs> at logical reasoning because it's not actually um, kind of a natural instinct, I would say, for uh, at least uh, it's not a fundamental, it's, maybe it's fundamental for human, but it's not like the most prominent way that we think in everyday life. Um, but after, after the, from the 90s, we start to use like statistical uh, reasoning more in AI and it solves a larger class of problem. So basically it comes from a pretty narrow class that AI, classical AI can solve and with statistical reasoning it can solve that, uh, a larger class of problems and then only in the last 10 years, that neural networks, which has been around for a long time, actually since the founding of AI, but it was not practical, it was not prominent. There were not enough uh, infrastructures uh, to, to help it work. Uh, and, but only in the last 10 years, actually from 2012, actually, uh, a lot of people think that is basically the start of the neural networks re revolution. It's inspired by the real neuron, but it's not very much yeah. Uh, like a new real a real neuron, but uh, there are a lot of things that actually um, similar in a way that um, neural networks in the current deep learning way. There are quite a few things that are quite similar to the way human brains work, there, but there are a lot of things that are different as well. So it's hard to say. Yeah. But turns out that uh, the current deep learning paradigm can solve a much larger class of problems, but there are weaknesses as well. So there are people that try to combine like. Uh, neuron, neural computing, you know, deep learning with symbolic reasoning as well. And that's a topic of ongoing research, by the way. So yeah. it's kind of complex. <laughs> but, yeah. So what, what are some examples of people combining symbolic logic with neural networks? Okay. Uh, I'll say that there, there are data sets that, uh, for example, data sets for solving kind of uh, visual reasoning problems. So um, it's easier to visualize if you have seen, if you have some images, but I can describe it in brief. Things like there are blocks uh, of different sizes with different colors, and there are like pyramids and uh, cubes, and um, maybe um, some, some other shapes, like pentagons and stuff like that on, on, a, on, on the table. And we need to tell a robot, a virtual robot, this is in a simulator, to move uh, a cube, a green cube, on top of um, the largest uh, red object on the table, things like that. So, right. so basically, the, uh, the robot is supposed to know which object is the largest and also red and stuff like that. And sometimes mm -hmm. the robot needs to also move some block away first in order to complete action. So things like that are a little bit similar to how uh, we want um, the robot to function in the real world, but it's hard to do so with just uh, deep learning, Got at it. least previously. But lately, it's hard to say because lately it turns out very large models can sort of do reasoning as well. So this is a very recent development. Uh, and um, But there, there are some sort of uh, interesting techniques uh, to make such large models, especially like large language models. Uh, I'll just uh, acronym acronymize it, sort of like 
as LLMs because people call it LLMs in, in the field LLM. And <clears throat> um, we can sort of give them a prompt so that it reason in a more detailed way and turns out that it can solve uh, a lot of problems much better. So for example, a, a good prompt might be, uh, let's think step by step. So in, instead of just tell them to uh, solve these math problems, right? You just uh, first say, let's think step by step and then the math word problem. And turns out that uh, the accuracy of the solution uh, of the of the model increases from say seventy something percent to eighty something percent, which is huge because you just add like one simple sentence in front of the the mm -hmm. question you ask the model, right. and this is a little bit like what you would say to a student. So that's why yeah. I mentioned that it's sort of a little bit like humans right now in a way. I see. You can basically ask the student to like uh, make the reasoning explicit when they solve a problem and usually well i mean i used to teach math by the way to a lot of kids before to quite a few kids not a lot uh, quite a few kids and some of them are pretty gifted and uh for non-gifted kids especially if you tell them uh to solve things in more detailed way they can solve better mm. so this is what happens with the large language models these days so there are like quite a few research papers exploring different ways to tell the language models to do this and that, to solve the same group of problems, but with different kind of instructions. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting. So and it can so basically do some reasoning. Yeah, that's the conclusion. Yeah. Quite a bit of reasoning these days. Gotcha. Without, so without maybe... resorting to like explicit symbolic mod, uh, reasoning. So mm. that's, that's the interesting part. So, We've previously, we sort of need to use some sort of explicit combination of symbolic reasoning and neural networks. But in the, basically in the last couple of years, or even the last few months, um, most prominently, um, there are ways uh, that researchers have found to, to kind of prod the model to do explicit reasoning without using symbolic reasoning per se in the classical sense. So maybe maybe we could take a, a few steps back. So because I think there's a lot of topics that some people not might not be familiar with. So maybe Andrew, you could help us because you've approached this topic from an outsider perspective and went pretty deep. So how how could you maybe categorize some of those concepts like that were mentioned, like deep learning, neural networks, like kind of what are those and how is that kind of organized in a modern sense today? So for us to know what like maybe that conversation was about. Um, so I, I can echo exactly what Ku said. Like I, my understanding of this. So Ku, I'm, I'm definitely not as academic as you are. I've approached from a very uh, doing lots of online courses and trying to code again some very basic models to figure out how this works. But um, it sounds like you know it quite a bit, though. <laughs> just enough to read papers and not get lost. Uh, wow, I, I, uh, that's that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot. Papers me, are not easy. The, the role I play is, I think. It's, it's the equivalent of football to me, right? I think it's the most exciting thing happening in humanity right now. And so if I can read the papers, it's like almost getting front row tickets to see what's happening. I mean, that's how, that's how I'm yeah. approaching developments in AI. Um, but so, uh, Alex, you know, the AI started with, with probably two different approaches, right? The symbolic reasoning, which is what uh, Ku's talking about, which is kind of like being very prescriptive. Like, like he said, telling a child how to do something specific and like thinking of ways to build like logic around that. And then there's this whole research that today we call machine learning, but really it's statistics on steroids, right? Which is like trying to look at data and figure out 
what the data is trying to tell us. And that's just become more sophisticated over time, right? That like statistics on steroids has is what has led to today's developments in 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 um, in machine learning, specifically like with deep learning, right? Because we have a ton of data that we didn't have before. We have better computing power. And then we have like very simplistic models that can work with that data to just generate a lot of results. What's really cool is that a lot of the results are looking miraculous, right? Like today you have very sophisticated systems, which actually are quite simple on the, when you look at what's happening on the, on the back end, but you throw them prompts in terms of language learning, or you ask them to, you know, paint you a picture and then they do these very sophisticated things. But in the same way that brains are composed of neurons, which are really just one and zero binary gates, right? Um, neural networks are also just like very simple things, but the emergent properties tend to be very sophisticated. And a lot of AI research today is actually trying to figure out how to control that emergent property in a more generalized manner. Meaning, if you can solve one specific problem, how can I get you to solve more than that one problem? Because that's kind of like how the human brain works. So like, that's one active area of, of like of research. And the second, I think like most interesting thing is how do I give you less data? If you think about it, if you show a child a picture of a cat three times, they get it. They know what a cat is, and they're able to then tell you what a cat is. But an AI model typically thousands of just like wrong cat and right. Um, so I think like those two things, if you get to solve that, at least for me, like I'm excited to see where we go from AI to what people call artificial general intelligence or like an AI right. that solve multiple problems. Uh, but I think we're still a far away from that. Yeah, um, I'll say that AGI is sort of hard to tell. There are there are things that seem very far away, um, and then if you are if you're interested, you might want to read more um, about um, kind of kind of the cognitive modeling literature. Basically, uh, people do study how humans actually think, and um, and it's very different uh, from the way that current language models work, the current LLMs work. And mm. but in a way, uh, current LLMs can at least solve quite a few uh, classes of problems that uh, were thought not to be possible, not possible to solve uh, with with such a pretty simple, relatively simple model, as Andrew mentioned. So, um, and these days the performance for some of those problems are quite um, quite high actually, is uh, quite a bit better than non-experts, non-human experts. But then it depends on a large uh, amount of data. So uh, generally these LLMs have basically ingested uh, hundreds of billions of uh, words. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's much more than native English speakers has uh, acquired in their lifetime. Generally, it's only maybe a billion words uh, for a 30-year-old uh, native speaker. So, um, so that's, that's one weakness, yeah. Uh, basically, it needs a lot more data. But then um, why? Uh, you can say why partly because humans are a lot more efficient uh, at learning because we selectively acquired the data that would help us learn best. So when when mm -hmm. you are when you have issues like when you solve math problems and you found like there are some errors, uh, you tend to pinpoint your attention to those errors and um, basically try to find 
uh, out why and how to fix that error, that class of error actually. We generalize better as well in a way, perhaps. Um, it's hard to make comparison per se because, uh, but, but generally we can, we can, we can uh, learn without as much data and then partly because we use active learning. Hmm. So, so maybe to to maybe help the audience, let's let's specifically define the difference between machine learning, neural networks, and deep learning. Maybe that would help also put all of this in better context. Okay, uh, so machine learning is um, the most general term. Um, if for for those three, so so AI is the most general, really, and then kind um, of that's sort of you can think of it a little bit like. Uh, modified Venn diagram. So, so AI is the most general, and then machine learning is a class of AI uh, that learns. So there are some AI, especially the classical ones that don't learn, they don't really change based on the data. So machine learning, uh, you use some algorithms to make the, out the model work better when it acquires more data. So that's machine learning, right? And yeah. the classical machine learning depends on um, statistical techniques. And then um, neural nets uh, and deep learning are sort of at least somewhat synonymous. Um, so neural nets is like the object that does the computing and deep learning is the kind of the technique of organizing neural networks such that it can learn uh, more efficiently or better, generalized better yeah. because it uh, basically layer artificial neurons uh, in a deeper way. So there are more, more layers. So the classical neural networks are like just two layers or something. So that's not yeah. deep, <laughs> uh, two or yeah. three layers. And nowadays it has like maybe hundreds of layers depending on yeah. which application. Yeah. Yes. And so putting that into a modern context, right? And basically against the, the historical context we talked about, uh, do can we talk about either the, the recent developments in hardware or software? So Andrew kind of mentioned like the, you know, the recent developments in, you know, being able to draw paintings or generate real text like that's written by someone, which is, I guess, developments in GPT-3 and DALI. And also on the hardware side, there's, you know, how there's convergence of transformer architecture. So do you, would you want to talk about software or hardware first? Um, I, I can talk about both briefly, maybe. <laughs> so that is it, because sure. they interact, really. Partly okay. because um, in order to, turns out, turns out there's uh, the one common thread uh, in deep learning is that scale matters a lot. Yeah. The scale matters a lot. And turns out there's, there's an, an uh, this is analogous to the biology, to biology. So uh, if you look at the uh, brains of different animals, animals with the most, uh, the largest brains tend to be a lot smarter. Right, humans is one of the largest uh, brain animals, uh, and um, for so so for neural nets as well. So if you have like a model with more parameters, more generally more layers as well, but sometimes not not a lot more. But if you have more parameters, generally it works better. So uh, the same problem, even with the same architecture, you just put in more neurons with more layers sometimes. And uh, generally, it can solve uh, it can solve that uh, solve that problem much better than the small models. So that's that's one thing. Like GPT three and GPT two actually are not that different architecturally, but GPT three is a lot larger and can solve uh, the same problem language generation much better than GPT two, for example. It's the same thing with Dolly. Like Dolly two uh, is a lot more capable than Dolly one. 
without the number actually at first, and uh, partly because it's a lot larger. Cool. I have, a, I have a question for you. What developments are you the most excited about? Well, <laughs> uh, well, I'll say. Well, for me personally, I say that large language models have still have some ways to go, right? Uh, if you look at the um, because researchers just still recently, in the last few weeks, actually, uh, the last couple of months, they have kind of wrinkled out more performance of these models just based on better prompting it. So the way to just pre prefix uh, the question with uh, new prompts, you know, like uh, the, the one that I mentioned, let's think step by step. is actually uh, from a research paper, a recent research paper that uh, explored different ways to to kind of uh prod the model to think differently so that's actually it's the same model that has existed uh for quite some time but researchers still have found new ways to get it to work better right. and um yeah so recently solved some math problems as well so so that's kind of surprising in this what, year what math problems were solved just out of curiosity Oh, okay, so uh, it's challenge. Uh, it's called the math dataset MATH. I'm not sure it's acronym or not, uh, but uh, it's composed of. Uh, you can search like math MATH dataset in NLP or something. Uh, it's composed of challenge problems for school students, but don't uh, don't disrespect the problems because I, I have taught these problems before. Uh, to kids, and and those are gifted kids that can solve these problems, and they cannot solve them perfectly, because even adults, many PhD students, cannot solve these problems that well. Um, and actually, there are some uh, PhD students in CS who are supposed to be pretty good at math, right? But there's some who are not interested in math per se; they are just more interested in CS in computer science, and they mm -hmm. cannot uh, solve this problem as well as the latest model. <laughs> that person, at least, that particular person, he got maybe 50% or something. I forgot the details, but uh, this this uh, model con called Minerva, right? I think from Google, Google probably, and it, it, can, it reached about 50% as well. So about the same performance as a PhD student in CS for these problems. And you see that's 50% for uh, math problems for school students. So you can tell that these problems are not easy. Got it. Fascinating. So if, if you have to break it down in language learning, what are the, the most important unsolved problems? In language learning? In language, like it's so in, in your particular field of AI, like language learning models. Okay. Okay. What the biggest unsolved problems? Or where, like between where you want it to go and where it is right now, what are... Actually, I don't want it to go that far. <laughs> <laughs> because why? why? I can tell you why. Uh, yeah. Because it would lead to AGI, and humanity is not ready for AGI. Yeah, we so are. anyone who listen, by the way, <laughs> anyone who listen, you don't want AGI too soon because um, we probably don't have the time. But I can tell you briefly that uh, it's analog analogous to chimpanzees and humans. You see what happens after humans has evolved. We we actually share ancestors. We are not from chimpanzees or monkeys, right? But we share like very, very distant ancestors with them. And um, okay, one genus, chimpanzee wouldn't do much to the species. You know, one human cannot fight with the whole species of chimpanzees or monkeys or even like 
dumber animals like yeah. um what are, what are the animals but if there's a whole species of humans right so now what happens to the monkeys to chimpanzees to the gorillas right <laughs> I, have a, I have a hot take on on this right which which you know you may disagree on but maybe our job is to give birth to the next generation see imagine you could have a child who's going to be einstein it would be really selfish if you said i'm not going to have this baby because i want to be the smartest person right so even if we get delegated into chimpanzeehood maybe that's a good thing we create the next if, type of species that goes out and you know does cool stuff i'm fine with that actually if we, we are well taken care of <laughs> we have, it's obvious. we're gonna die in like 50 years who cares we'll probably destroy the planet anyways but at least we'll create something else that can go and have interstellar travel and and solve physics the thing is that it might not take 50 years <laughs> so that's so that's, that's why that's, we need agi asap <laughs> no no uh i'm saying that the agi <laughs> might Okay, if it not- happens right now, uh, in in say five years, uh, which is possible, so pretty low probability, but in ten years, more higher probability, maybe in fifteen years, at least fifty percent chance, in my opinion, for an AGI within fifteen fifteen years. What happens is that is AGI is a very powerful optimization process. So it's going to optimize for anything that uh, that is built for. What if it optimizes for something that conflicts with your value mm. for example if it optimizes for the best uh most pristine environment possible you know it's not great it's like, no humans uh, the world. it's no humans yeah. it turns out it it has figured out all the possibilities uh the best way to do it is to eliminate all humans from existence yeah. so so is that maybe with the pandemic we're just Maybe killing the pandemic are you okay with that killing everyone you love and killing yourself with the pandemic you know perfect that's fine. the thing perfectly Unless... fine okay okay <laughs> I, i i bet that the yes. people don't agree three people anyways it's okay <laughs> and if they don't care about your uh your suffering maybe the pandemic uh at least would take one year to kill each person i mean like simultaneously obviously but each person might need to suffer like for half a year before they die yeah. <laughs> is it okay because it would it would I, consider I, without without us in this calculation it would not take into account at all human suffering yeah, yeah. so we need to make sure that I, it takes into I, account I, human well-being i understand okay. the hypothetical scenario like and you know like some people call it the staple problem right what if what if an agi just wants to mix staples and decides to mine the whole world to mix staples because it wants to play with it right or some other weird scenario like that i get it yeah. but i think that if you create a very generalized form of intelligence which is like what we are seeing right now with a lot of like the most sophisticated models right it will have some elements of what we consider close to human like attributes right curiosity attention the ability to like perceive the ability to to understand and i think you can't imbue these elements but it's almost like an offset of having predictive ability right it starts to want to predict more right and yeah. i think that as a result yes you may not have the emotional intelligence like the, the the agi or whatever we develop may not have the emotional intelligence to do some of the things we wanted to do but it's also very anthropocentric right it's it's very like looking at yeah. human like the ultimate being and saying like ah but put me first you know save me first i think like we're we're honestly kind of flawed and not that special 
right? We have this, we have this like very specific thing we do where we say, ah, humans are special, protect us first. But what if we're not that special? Like, think about it, right? We're balls of flesh that live 80, 80 years, right? We're creating this really cool thing that can live in the cold of space and live for millions of years and work on parallel computing far larger than we can. And it arguably will become smarter than us, right? Yeah, why? It why, will. Why? It will. <laughs> yeah. So, no, I, I do not think we should prevent this birth, by the way. Uh, AGI from the future, if you are listening, I'm not against you, by the way. Uh, so uh, don't, don't kill me too soon. Uh, anyway, I just want you to like take into account the well-being of, of uh, the existing, uh, the basically the most... Uh, well-known, most prominent, and your basically your fathers and mothers. Overlords <laughs> <laughs> yeah. here, I was on their side, okay? I was on their side too, and you weren't. Spare <laughs> <Fair> my life. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I agree we should give birth to AGI, but we also should, there, there's a field called AI alignment, by the way, that tries to make sure that the AI value, AGI value aligns with the humanity's value. And that's really hard because we don't can't even agree on what our values are, right? So, we, but probably we don't we try to avoid killing people unnecessarily, things like that, you know. Yeah, cool. makes sense. Um, I, the other question I wanted to ask you is why why pick language learning models? Oh, it's called by the way, LLM is like large language models. Oh, large, sorry, large so, language yeah. models. Yeah. Why why pick LLMs as your field of focus? Well, I've been interested in language for <laughs> since forever. <laughs> since uh, well, I I started kind of a little bit fall in love with English since I was twelve or something. Uh, because uh, well, I had good experience with uh, English teachers from from like the U.S. Actually, uh, they they were kind of really kind of friendly, you know, like different from my. Uh, school teachers who were more authoritarian, things like that. So there was a gap, right? And then now, basically, I, I fell in love with English, and English sort of gives a different worldview, I think, because uh, it's from a very different culture, different language family, and things like that. So, and from that, then I, when I, I started uh, basically learning computers, and then, you know, I, I want to basically use computer to help people learn English better. And turns out that language is a lot more interesting than that uh, because language sort of embeds um, a lot of things that humanity as a whole has learned over millennia. You know, things like proverbs, right? Uh, things like even some concepts, uh, some concepts like generalization. You know, some languages actually doesn't have a word for generalization. So English actually has a privilege. <laughs> That's why so many good mm -hmm. thinkers are from, uh, has at least good English. Because uh, there, are, there are things that are kind of philosophical things that are embedded in certain languages and not others. So in order to understand the world, if you understand language deeply, you can understand the world better. Very cool. Yeah, it's the best symbolic representation we have of yeah. musical. Has, yeah, has evolved a long time. And actually now Google has announced that it's going to create a new language model that uh, inc incorporates data from a thousand languages into one model. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. Uh, well, I was thinking, well, there's a few things, right? Because I, I think the, the, it seems for where we are with AI, like data, applying data to the current model still can go 
almost infinitely long because I think GPT-3 only used 750 gigs of the internet. But I was looking at there's about like 5 billion gigs of actual total internet. So like, do I mean, do you see like, like how long can we keep going with throwing data at the current models until we need to actually start changing the hardware? Or, you know, or do you think that that's sufficiently enough to get AI or do we need some combination of figuring out all the different narrow weak AI first before it becomes AGI or how do you think about those kind of things? Wow, <laughs> that's really big questions. Um, uh, I'll say that one thing for actually for, for text-based data, we are reaching the limits really because um, if you are throwing now actually the biggest models have, have thrown a lot of good text into it. You know, the, the com largest companies have thrown a ton of text uh, that are kind of filtered a bit. Uh, so it's not like throwing all, all those garbage in. And um, it probably wouldn't, they cannot find at least easily like an order of magnitude more data. And then the scaling thing is that it takes like a lot more, you know, it's just, like, it's not like twice the amount of the existing data. It takes maybe 10 times more or something in order to improve the performance like for 5% or something with the current architecture. So you cannot easily do that uh, and improve the performance a huge amount. And also the, mm -hmm. the issue with data, I, I didn't mention the link to hardware because if you have a lot more data, you need a lot more powerful hardware as well with a much mm -hmm. larger cost. And that's possible for now because the cost of training a huge language model still is still like in the order of ten million dollars. Sounds a lot, right? But still, yeah. compared to other like major scientific endeavors, you know, uh, like in physics experiment, absurd. The billions. It's, yeah, it's just uh, a tiny amount, you know, a couple yeah. percent. I don't know. Um, compared to that, even not even one percent. Um, but uh, I say that we are reaching the limit of good textual data. So now oh. I, I, I suspect uh, that for open, open AI, by the way, just uh, really released a model, it's called Whisper AI, it's Whisper, I think, uh, that can very well extract um, text from uh, video and audio and can do it much better than the current, um, current um, YouTube uh, transcription, I'll say, from, from the examples I've seen. So uh, with that sort of model, maybe it's easier to extract more data from text and uh, from videos and audios. Yeah. Hello? Yeah, Hello? Yeah, Hi, quick, quick question. Uh, what's your sense about OpenAI as a company? Because I know that it's crazy amount of money going to that country recently. Uh, can, can you repeat the question again? Uh, you know it's what, losing money or something? No, what's your sense about OpenAI as a company? Because, I mean, you know, there's a tremendous amount of money going to this company and a business doing great things. But, but as yeah. a company, I mean, what's your sense about it and the prospects? In, in what aspect of it? <laughs> I, I'm not um, sure as what a aspect. Business. As a business? Yeah. Wow, it's a long-term bet. Yeah, I'll say it's mm. a long-term bet. Because in the short run, they are, they are bleeding a lot of money. Because they're hiring many, many good researchers in AI. They're, um, and then they are super expensive, you know, in AI, they, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in people in AI, they cost like at least hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. And the top ones are in the millions. 
Um, yeah. So, um, so basically, um, they don't make a whole lot of money right now. Yeah. But but I think the bet is on AGI. Actually, GPT four, GPT four, which is probably coming. I don't know in a couple of years at, at the latest, probably even next year. Um, it's gonna get pretty close to AGI in the textual domain. It's gonna get hard. Uh, if you don't try very hard to to, and you don't know how to prod it a certain way, you probably can tell. I think for GPT four, even GPT three is getting pretty good, but but you can still tell if you pay attention. Yeah, that it's not AGI. But AGI, by the way, uh, the, the current model is a little bit like humans who are drunk, a little bit drunk at least, or not very logical. So, so when it would spout out a lot of things, uh, and if you don't pay attention, it sounds very fluent. It sounds mm. pretty human. But, but being drunk is where the creativity flows, right? I mean, if you look at yeah, all yeah, the like, yeah. ancient poets, they're all drunk all the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it turns out that the current... LLMs, the language models, are pretty good at writing creative stuff, mm, but yeah. not very good at writing analytical, you know, or something that requires a very deep logical reasoning, multi-step reasoning. So that's why solving the math problems is sort of surprising, because generally mm. math takes a lot of logical reasoning to solve, um, and the way to use the language model to solve math uh, is not simplistic basically i would say that it takes some pretty interesting techniques to get them to solve lang uh, math problems as opposed to solving language problems so the the it's simple kind of, language problems is easier it's kind of very interesting right because historically when, when people when people look at ai they would say that okay AI is good at solving logical problems but it's not good yeah. at creativity which is a result of humans but now we are seeing something which is opposite yeah, yeah. But that, but that, yeah, that's probably relative to the data set, right? That's because of the type of data we're feeding the, the models, no? I think partly data set and partly the architecture. So the neuron nets are probably a little bit like the hu way human brains work. When yeah. we don't think hard, uh, basically, we, as if some of you have, have studied a bit of uh, neuroscience, basically the, the part that basically takes care of logical reasoning is the prefrontal cortex, right? And... Um, when we are kind of uh, drunk or sleepy, he's not very active, uh, but we still have a lot of other neurons in, in our brain and they can basically do very good pattern matching. I'll say that deep learning is very good at pattern matching, while the historical classical AI, um, basically they kind of brute force, brute force uh, logical reasoning. Mm -hmm. And um, so, Basically, when you do the logical reason, uh, when you do pattern matching, sometimes you can get very fluent and creative, but you might not be very logical. But classical AI, although it can solve logical reasoning in a certain very narrow domains pretty well, it cannot generalize to a much larger class. So, so I'll say that logical AI, uh, one word to describe it is that it's very brittle. It can solve certain class of narrow class of problems well, but if it goes outside that just a little bit, it breaks down completely. Uh, so that's very unlike humans, right? Uh, but the current deep learning models, large language models, can solve a large class of problems at least fairly well. And it doesn't break down completely. If you try to kind of fool around with GPT-3, you can try it uh, at OpenAI website. It can sort of 
uh, bounce back from from things uh, pretty well. Uh, it the performance might be great, but it would not kind of break out completely. So that's that in that way, quite similar to humans, similar to kind of not very uh, logical, conscious humans. Maybe like a child, something. So like a drunk person, or like a drunk person. Yeah. I'm also curious about the, the existence of this kind of AI and how does it. Uh impact the global governance. Uh, the reason why I'm asking this is that uh, a few years ago, I mean, a good friend of mine is, uh, is an SACTO of a large air company in Beijing and that focuses on like a natural language processing. So they developed a chatbot a few years ago. I mean, I, I think it's a bunch of ex-Microsoft people. So they developed a chat chatbot a few years ago and uh, that, that, that they just threw out in, in, into the market and learn whatever that, that's, that, that, that they can gather in the internet. But uh, within two weeks, um, uh, the chatbot started saying bad things about Xi Jinping and they had to shut it down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a hard problem because if it, it's too good, I mean, without, without safeguards, it's going to basically, it's like a kid, I'll say, right? Uh, if you basically raise a kid without filtering in any kind of information that they get, they could grow up to be a pretty bad person. So it's a little bit like that. So if we actually get to AGI, uh, Zoom especially, uh, we need to be very careful to curate the data that the AGI absorbs, especially when it's young. So that's, as, why, that's why Google's uh, motto is don't be evil, no? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. It's, it's hard to, to safeguard AGI uh, or a, even current AI from, from, from learning bad stuff. And then yeah. there are people trying because you cannot really dissect this. Unlike the classical AI, where you can kind of dissect some bad parts out, you can kind of see where the things are. The current AI, you can still see it kind of, but it's a bit like medicine. You need like sophisticated tools like fMRI and things to look inside the brain, and you still cannot pinpoint everything that's going on. So it's so becoming a bit like the brain, really. In a way, so basically, basically, if the AI sort of forms its uh, ethics, it might be very different from our ethics. Yeah, if you are not if you are not careful, by default, it's not going to be the same. It's it's going to be. I know we don't know how it's going to become, right? <laughs> yeah, that's why AI yeah. is very dangerous without without enough research. Uh, well, isn't that a bit? Isn't that a bit too anthropomorphic? I mean, if say, because are you talking about regular AGI or super AGI? Because I feel like if it's super AGI, it grows beyond the need of humans. If it's if it's an AGI like a human, then yeah, I can see it being a problem because humans really mess up each other quite badly, especially if they're divergent, right? So I mean, it doesn't it. I mean, if you reach AGI, doesn't it get to super AGI pretty fast? And then it shouldn't humans yes. not matter? I mean, guys, we we have no clue. This is all hypothetical space, right? We have an idea yeah, of like true. what's happening. <laughs> We've yeah. all watched my uh, movies. Yeah, it's like chimpanzees discussing what humans are going to be like. That's true. That's true. Thing right? If uh, you know, since we're pulling from sci-fi movies, in uh, Planet of the Apes, the reason why the apes reacted the way they did is because we put them in cages and made them do ridiculous shit and ran experiments on them, right? AGI is coming from a field called deep reinforcement learning. If you think about it, we're making these agents run around and play. <laughs> 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 hours 
basically killing each other, right? So there's an AGI right now in StarCraft and in World of Warcraft that's just like murdering people and getting murdered a million times. And that's the thing that's going to form the basis of this model. <laughs> You're scaring people off. <laughs> so, what do you think off. is going to happen? I'm just saying. <laughs> They become super good at the at, at murdering people, or they become like a king of shock, which just give up murdering people. <laughs> Entirely possible. Or they get really, really angry. Mm-hmm. I, I say that we can actually, at least, um, because we are building AGIs unlike chimpanzees and humans, because chimpanzees don't have any influence, uh, at least direct influence on the way humans evolved. I say that we humans can understand AGIs better than chimpanzees can understand humans. So that in that way, we can sort of kind of pontificate a little bit about it. I think it's interesting that you say that because if you look at like the forefront of a lot of models that we've developed, we actually know like the architecture on a very high level, but then people don't really know what's happening at every perceptron or like what's happening across like different layers, right? We have a rough, like I think it was three or four years ago when like Chris Ola, one of these other researchers had this like publication that like a lot of the neurons in a neural network are just dead, but we just keep it there because of the architect that was developing over right. time, right? right. And, and so I think like like AI is developing so fast, like we've got parallelized architecture, we've got lots of data, we've got models, and then what every researcher does is they take an existing model, they do some hyperparameter tuning or they add a few more things, and then voila, it works, you know, a slightly 3% better with 60% efficiency or whatever, and then right. they launch. And over some time, we actually don't really know what's happening, how much of it is dead, which encoders are actually working. I, I do think it's entering a weird mystery space where at some point we're not really sure what's going on underneath like a lot of the hoods of these. That's models. already happening though, right? That's it, it, is. Happening. it is. Correct. But there, there's research. There's research going on. Actually, Chris Orla is involved in a new company called uh, Anthropic AI, if I'm not uh, mistaken. Uh, Anthropic. So that, that company is uh, focusing on, on basically understanding the current large model so that uh, we can control it better or influence its behavior better. So it's going to... Yeah. I, I think there's a few people actively looking into that space, but not very many actually. But, but you're Yeah, right. we need more. We need more, certainly. Yeah. Okay. All right. I think, I think we have to let uh, Ken go. So... Um, thank, thank you for sharing your, your experience. I mean, we could go much deeper, I think, but of course, the <laughs> time, time is always a constraint. Uh, right. I think maybe, maybe me, I don't know if Jangan and Andrew has more time, we can continue discussion, but I think we could let you go if you have to drop off now. Sure. All right. Uh, so thanks a lot. Uh, very interesting questions. Uh, a lot more <laughs> uh, than I expected, actually. <laughs> so, yeah. Thanks. Well, thanks, thank you guys. for sharing. So, All see right. you later. Bye. Okay. That's cool. All right. Take care. Yeah. See you later. Okay. Uh, I don't know. So uh, I don't know. Do you guys have any final thoughts then about this discussion on AI? Um, did you learn anything? Is there anything useful? Anything you could extrapolate from? We're all gonna die. <laughs> AGI is coming. Did you guys see the link I shared you on Roku's Basilisk? Uh, no, not yet. I'm gonna check it out later. So, so Roku's Basilisk is a thought experiment that if you knew that there was going to be a super sophisticated AGI in the future, and you were having discussions that could potentially prevent its birth, then it will come back after it invents time travel and kill you, right? Um, oh, yeah, yeah, so that's why we have to say sorry, AI, you know. Exactly, exactly. So in typical Asian version, <laughs> spirituality, you have to say sorry, AGI, I didn't mean to talk about you not existing, of course. Um, Jagan, what were your takeaways, Jagan? 
was talking to that friend of mine who is the CTO, right? The CTO friend, the uh, company have been working really, really hard to make a healthy work for the last seven years. And uh, and he got really excited about all these generative models. And, um, I, I, and his tech is that uh, we are at the cost of something. What exactly is the thing? He, he's very adamant that nobody knows. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I think this whole stuff about like AGI and singularities and getting to like this massive explosion, that's all like, honestly, no one has a clue. That's like trying to predict when like a certain miraculous technology is going to exist. Right. But I think what's really interesting is the, or at least the part that people miss out is how softly growth happens and how it permeates into culture and into uh, daily utilization, right? Like, for example, 10 years ago, GPS was shit, right? You, you had to buy these yeah. sophisticated devices. You have to attach that to a front of your dashboard. It didn't work half the time, right? Yeah. And then today you have Google Maps, which is for free, doing like these very sophisticated analysis. And it's able to, to crunch out the answers to you in like miraculous time, right? So I think what you're going to see and, and for example, we take for granted voice models and how quick they are today, but then you've got, uh, you know, Alexa in your home or Google home or whatever yeah. it is. Right. And so like, I think what's going to happen is in the same way, mobile phones was one day non-existent. And then 10 years later, everyone is looking into their screens and this whole like culture and societal shift around this device, like AI will permeate in a very, very subtle way. It just will enter your life in various devices, in various tools. It already has, but it's going to increase. Like the, the like, yeah. it's not going to be like. There's not going to be like the sudden moment where you go, "Holy fuck, AI is all around us." You know, I think like it's just going to subtly get better and better until it's, it's a co-evolution. Right? It's a co-evolution. Like I'll give you an example, right? Today we're we're investing. I, I don't know if you guys saw Facebook recent presentation on Metaverse, right? So they're they're looking at these VR goggles that you wear and you basically can be in telepresence with a bunch of people, which is incredible. I work at a fully remote company right now. And not having telepresence sucks. You want to have collaborative work environments. If you can wear these glasses and be with someone, um, I'm getting to AI, by the way, with this conversation. So if you could wear these goggles and actually be talking to someone in a very virtual space, and what they do right now is the goggles actually simulate your facial expressions using cameras on the goggles itself. And so there is an avatar version of you that you know uses your facial expressions quite expressively and then is able to communicate to someone else. During the last presentation, they showed a high fidelity model of how this would look like in the future using like the best processes. And it looks really like you and the resemblance is uncanny and you have these little facial twitches, etc. Mm. The way they do that is they use these cameras to do motion capture, to understand how your face moves and build a data model behind your facial movements. And then the model actually doesn't copy exactly what you're doing. It takes your voice inflections and other things you're doing. And then it models out how your telepresence avatar would move in virtual space, right? Now, in theory, if I have a language model, if I have a visual model, and I have movement models, and I can comb that together, I can create these avatars that look and feel like real humans in this virtual space and communicate to you with the best natural language models and look like a human, right? So you could have meetings in the future where you're in this metaverse and speaking to eight people out of which you don't know how many of them are real humans and how many of them are not, right? And in some extent, 
like that's i think how it will happen like we like our, like the children of, of the next generation in the same way like kids today are just so used to mobile phones will be so used to living among robots and ais and like telepresence avatars that they won't realize that there's a distinction between a human and and this like sophisticated ai model oh, because like kids yeah. with uh, ipads and iphones now like children exactly. babies it's the same thing and i think i think like that like this like this thing that we're scared of this miraculous like super agi thing it's actually really my bet is actually it's really long like long time away because what you're going to see is actually like helpful robotics and yeah. i think we're putting a lot of of not pressure but a lot of like like uh, focus on this idea that it's going to be a single entity that's like super intelligent instead what you're going to see is lots of subroutines working with each other to create different elements of intelligence that will almost complement and work together with us so you almost see like a permeation on both sides at least that's my take yeah that's my that's, I, my hypothesis is quite similar in that like if, if you do want to get to agi you would need to solve all different forms of the the narrow ai and you know it's, it, it is like you said by combining it it's like like if you take your example, actually what you would have is in the work, like if you're working remote, you would have a robot in the office that represents you, but you're controlling it through VR, but the people can actually interact with it in the real world too, right? So right. it's like, I, I, I think it will be something something like this. And it's like you said, it's just, I think this is the new paradigm shift, just like how internet was the paradigm and then mobile, right? It's just the, the next iterations and you just grow into it. 100%. But honestly, like this whole topic about AGI, like if you speak to a real researcher, they're just going to laugh at you. Right, it's like it's such a yeah, hypothetical, yeah, yeah. badly defined concept, like consciousness, that you can't really solve for it. Right, like there's no real proper definition for it. What's happening is we're just getting models that are a lot better at doing. Like so, like if I take a step back, what machine learning? You asked just now, what was machine learning? Right, machine learning basically is building predictive models. Right, that either do two things: regression or classification. Does this thing belong in this group, or does this thing start to resemble this thing over time? Right. And what we've built, what we've realized today is the brain is just a models that also do prediction at scale. And we're just going to see that these models will get better and better over time without necessarily starting to develop these things that we call intelligence, consciousness, because they are all very poorly defined. It just becomes better at predicting still until at some point it starts to resemble how we predict. Yeah. Well, that, that's like kind of what they call the Chinese room argument. It's like if exactly. just because so, someone can speak Chinese back to you by reading doesn't mean they know Chinese. But I I do believe though Which, with significant with, with significant scale. Yeah, but I I don't know. I I kind of have a different line of thought where like you know with enough scale, if you can't really differentiate it, like like if I do have a conversation in Chinese with a an AI and I can't really tell and it's just using data, I think at a certain scale it does become actual reality. Like it is actually what like you, it's like whether you want to choose to believe it. I mean, it may be the process of correct. So yeah. Alan Turing, the computer scientist, has a test called the Turing test, which is basically if you put a human and an AI in two different rooms and you had a conversation with it, would you know which one is a human? And, and his his thing is like that's when AI has become human intelligent, right? And yeah. and AI passed the Turing test years ago. Yeah, correct. So I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of pushback against that, right? But like, what what you're saying essentially is saying like, it's not really human and it's not really a mind. But I think over time, with with enough, like you said, enough models like combining, intersecting, it does have some type of emergence where you it just is like sentient on itself. I think it depends on what you mean by sentience, because like ultimately, like so. 
So I think a very, uh, so my, my interest in this whole field actually started by computation neuroscience. I wanted to understand how the brain works and then that reached me out into this side, right? Yeah. And the, the very interesting take here is that the human brain is actually a massive computer, right? And yeah. it's a massive parallel computer running an that we, that we don't understand still. We don't really understand. It's like some variant of how backpropagation works, but not yeah, fully, correct. right? Um, what's very interesting is this. If you think that the human mind is a predictive model, then at the end of the day, like you're literally developing something that's very similar to how the human brain works. And you're, you're, or at least like output-wise, like Chinese room, you don't know what's inside, but the output is going to be very r- roughly similar. Now, the difference is like the human brain does a few things. Like it, it almost works like a deep reinforcement learning model, right? You're putting it into this environment and then it's reacting with the environment and learning things. And then depending on how, you, what model you put into which environment, you're going to get different outputs, right? Yeah. Uh, but there's like a base human model that has certain subroutines. We haven't developed an AI that has all the different subroutines that a human model has because typically they're living in very structured environments and we're building it just for that. But one of the biggest um, like unsolved areas in, in machine learning is something called zero-shot learning. So how can I give something less input? Less data, so that, yeah. input? And then in theory, then there's a second piece called transfer learning. So that if I learn from one model, can I apply it to a different model with very little initial input? So DeepMind is very actively researching these two pieces. How can I give you less stuff? So zero-shot learning or one-shot learning and then do transfer learning. And now they have models that are trained on chess, but then play Go, right? Yeah. Or, or learn StarCraft and then do some stuff. Guys, I, I need to run, so I'm on my iPad. Uh, do I need or keep it open? Because I'll be on a move. All right, well, okay, let's just, okay, we'll end, we'll end here then. Have to continue this. Yeah. Thanks, guys. It was awesome catching up. Yeah, we didn't get to hear much about the personal, but uh, next time uh, we'll talk more. Yeah, let's casually. Oh, at some point. Yeah, for sure. All right, guys. Uh, thanks for for the episode, and then uh, we'll try to do this again soon. Yes, man. Bye. Bye. All right, bye, guys. I mean, yeah, delegation. Knowing what to hold on to, let go. Especially as your organization grows, right? That's you got to start trusting the right people, but then you have to make sure it's in place. And it's like switching to mentorship, so it's tricky. I think uh, I I think in theory it's easy, but the thing is that in practice, so so especially you build the organization and uh, and you started by doing lots of things yourself, and for you to keep that up in practice, it just um, I think it takes some mental will, to be honest. It depends on personality too. Like Sabrina naturally also is a person who couldn't let go, but over time you realize you do end up going crazy because there's too many people and things just don't get done. Um, But yeah, I I noticed that all all sizes of growth that it's a recurring theme that always comes back, I think. And the problem is when you let go too much, that's the other hard balance. Like then you're out of touch and then, things start going sideways because you should have held on to certain things that you shouldn't have let go and vice versa, right? So it's always like that. I think, I think it also goes back to, to a point that we discussed previously, right? The mental space. So of course, the detailed work that you, you can get others to do it. And, uh, and and as the leader, you sort of become more of a facilitator's role. Sort of, sort of you, you coach the people to do the right thing and you are there for them when they need help. So. Um, but the question is that uh, when you, because when, when we let things go, you take on something 
like different, right? You talk like something at a different level, and uh, and in, in that part, you can always get congested very quickly as well. So, yeah. so it's almost like a it's like kind of mouse game, right? So you 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 let go certain things, and you think that it will be uh, life will become easier. Then organization goes, and you have different things to worry about, and very soon you become the bottleneck again. <clears throat> yeah, that's true. So did you did you end up uh, discussing? Any of the, the 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 topics from Simon Sinek about the the Gen Z, did you experience any of that yourself? Um, the funny thing is that okay, we're talking about that uh, Simon Sinek uh, sort of video that he shared with us uh, the other day, right? Where yeah, um, where he mentioned about I mean how how he thinks about the the, the issues that Gen Z uh, are going through and the burning out, et cetera, et cetera, right? Yeah. The funny thing is that I shared that with my team because a lot of my team uh, are actually Gen Z, and uh, I, I got some feedback and some of them were really interesting. So, so one of them said, uh, "Yeah, let me quote. I think half of the disconnect lies in exactly how he's talking about it. I'd say I'm only really fifty percent Gen Z, but in my opinion, it's less less of a. They are all ill equipped to deal with stress." And moreover, this is unprecedented kind of stress that that we are as a society have introduced to people's lives without any sort of tools to deal with it. So basically, basically, this colleague is revolting against the exact way that someone is describing about it, and she feels that there's a disconnect. Isn't that interesting? So yeah? isn't that the point? Isn't that like one of the themes he's talking about that there is a disconnect? I, I think he's talking about disconnect, he's, well, but yeah. Mm. Yeah, because he's talking about disconnect between generations, and then your mm. staff is saying there's a disconnect between what society... Is. I mean, it's the same thing, but like from different angles, I guess. It's what so, it so, so basically, she's saying that the, the describe describes this disconnect is by self a manifest, manifestation of this disconnect. You, wait, what, what's the manifestation? You are? The way that Samosanic describes oh, okay. this disconnect yeah. itself is a manifestation of the disconnect, if you know what I mean. Well, that's pretty meta, but um, it's, <laughs> it's actually it's the same, saying the same thing, Ben. <laughs> no, but, 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 but here's the interesting thing, right? Because everybody, every big company has, um, I mean, even like Facebook Meta, right? They have the ability to understand the young generation, right? I mean, uh, and every company, I presume, do a lot of lot of research to understand what the young people really want. And, and, and hi, 